Welcome back to Zero Brightness, a podcast about Kentucky Route Zero. <laughs> That's it for the rest of time. <laughs> no, it's a podcast about horror video games, but man, we sure are talking about Kentucky Route Zero. We're doing part two. Mm-hmm. If you haven't heard part one, go listen to part one and, you know, get the intro. And now we're just like really diving into it. So, you know. Look, time is a flat circle and we're on the lock groove of side A. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Kinda? We're flipping that disc. <laughs> we're going to start on side B today. <laughs> yep, we're changing discs. Uh, just like a PS1 game. Uh, but before we do that, as always, this episode is brought to you by you. You can go to patreon.com slash zero brightness to find out how you can support the show. Uh, And zero brightness is a game club. We tell you what we're going to play next. So you can play along with us. You can hop in our discord and chat with us about that or food. That's kind of all we ever talk about now. (laughs) Um, I'm not complaining. I'm just observing. It's, uh, it's, it's been sort of an interesting twist. Our European friends want to know about creamed corn. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, we're learning that uh, people all around the world have one thing in common. We're all hungry all the time. (laughs) Indeed. So Kentucky Route Zero. (laughs) Yes. A game where you do eat breakfast. Yeah. There might be chicken in Kentucky. I heard about that. Yeah. There's like a a recipe, some sort of closely Mm -hmm. guarded family secret that isn't actually very good. Chicken and bourbon. And horses. <laughs> That's what they're all about. So just to catch you up, listener, last time we talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about the setting. We talked about the aesthetics. Talked about the influences of this great game, mm-hmm. Kentucky Route Zero. We sort of talked about how it's great. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just a great game that you absolutely should play. Um and I think today it's going to focus more on the story. Yeah, we're going to do a plot rundown, talk about more of the references that are scattered throughout this game. This game is just so reference and lore heavy that I think it's fun to kind of um, dwell on some of that stuff a little bit. Well, and one like more nuts and bolts kind of gameplay thing that I did want to talk about and clarify a little bit from the first episode, mm-hmm. just based on some conversations we had in the discord. Mm. Uh, so in the last episode, I say a bunch of times that it's, this game is very much like a novel or a piece of writing. Yeah. And I think that maybe some people were confused about what I meant by that. Mm. And what I was trying to say was that I feel like this game takes a lot of the techniques and structure and style from a novel. So in order to understand what's going on or why certain things are happening, it helps to think about it like a novel, you know? But I didn't mean to say that it's a passive experience or that you're just reading or to compare it to a visual novel. Mm, right. Um, I definitely don't want to do that because I actually what's interesting about this game is that it's it's very much not a visual novel in any way. And in a lot of ways, visual novels don't remind me of actual novels at all. No, not at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. And like 
the experience of playing a visual novel is actually kind of unique to itself. It's like a mm-hmm. form that exists only in itself. I sure. wouldn't really compare it to much else out there, but this game is definitely not like that. And I, I wanted to be very clear. <laughs> not a, you know, I don't know. Visual novels, they're not for me. They're not my thing. I don't want to shit on them. I know a lot of people like them. If you like them, great. Have fun. But Enjoy your little fake girlfriend. <laughs> okay, I didn't say that. <laughs> Although, if your boyfriend is a pigeon, that's kind of cool. Oh, yes, of course. Of course. That's a real one if you haven't heard of that game. <laughs> um, Hatoful boyfriend? Yeah, it exists. I'm not just making shit up. Yeah, I played it. I've dated them. <laughs> I dated a pigeon. Um, my point is that it, it helps to think about the game in that way. But mm-hmm. the actual experience of playing it, like we said in the last episode, it's more like a mix between an old school text adventure and like a new school cinematic platformer like Night in the Woods or Detention. Mm-hmm. Well, if you play it with a controller. If you play it with the mouse, it's much more point and clicky. But it's kind of cool how versatile the gameplay is in that way. Right. And I also think, too, that a lot of our listeners are going to be people like me who are checking it out for the first time and probably excited to play it on a console. Sure. Like, if we had been super interested in playing it on a PC, we probably already would have done it. Mm. Um, so I know for me personally, I was waiting for the whole story to be over and collected and so I could play it on, like, a format that I really like. Yeah. And once again, I, th- I said in the last episode, I think it was totally worth it. And we'll talk about it, I'm sure, more today. I thought having everything collected in one place was really brilliant and helped the story a lot. Absolutely. But yeah, I just kind of wanted to clarify what I meant by that and why I went on that whole long tangent about magical realism. The The reason I went on that tangent is that I just felt like knowing about that and getting the feel of that helps you understand it better. Totally. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. So I just want to clarify. I, d- I was not saying it's like a passive experience or comparing it to visual novels. Yeah. Got it. Everybody got it? Everyone write that down? Did you get that? Okay. (laughs) All right. So the story in Kentucky Route Zero. The game is split up into five acts with five kind of intermission things. Act one starts off in your Conway. You're a delivery driver on his last night on the job. He pulls into a gas station called Equus Oils, which is a pretty amazing looking place. It looks like this giant 1920s art deco horse head with that kind of like slanted roof that's like classic post-war gas station. Yeah, it's Uh, awesome. He pulls in to ask for directions to Dogwood Drive. It's a street he's never heard of. So he asks uh, a guy named Joseph, the blind gas station attendant, if he's ever heard of it. And he says he might need to take a mysterious road called the Zero. He says an acquaintance of his might have... The directions to get there so you have to go inside solve kind of a simple puzzle to get the address of this other person essentially it's pretty cool because you go into the basement of the gas station and you flip a light on and like the basement of the gas station ends up being like the body of the horse <laughs> it's like one of those like really trippy moments that this game is filled with yeah you go down there and you see like some people playing like D. once the lights turn on they're gone kind of like alludes to them being ghosts but uh there's three of them and you get names for them all emily ben and bob they're kind of reoccurring characters throughout the game actually it's cool to see them here because they show up in like different contexts 
throughout the story. Anyways, so you, you solve a couple puzzles. You get into uh, Joseph's computer, and you get this address, and you take off to the Marquez Farmhouse, which is named after one of the authors you name-dropped in the previous episode. Yeah, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Great author. Uh, one of the one of the big names. Magical realism. Like I said in that episode, 100 Years of Solitude. Huge, huge influence on this game. So, yeah, the Marquez Farmhouse is actually built on... Uh, its visuals are based on a stage play. I think it was uh, Death of a Salesman, like the original Death of a Salesman. Oh, sure. This scene's cool because you, like, start at your truck and then you recede into the background. And so, like, everything in the foreground just, like, turns into, like, stark silhouettes. And then, like, the background reveals itself as, like, an open house. And I believe that that open house motif is based on Death of a Salesman. It just looks great. I mean, the the changing perspective and, like, the sort of play between the foreground and the background. There's, like, some cool depth of field shit. Yeah. It's very cinematic and it's very cool. Yeah. Um, this opening, like, okay, we talked about it. I think we mentioned it in the first episode. This game starts really slow. Mm. Uh, I think act one is kind of a weird one, mm. uh, but it also has some really great visuals right up top. So it's like the game kind of dangles the stuff in front of you and it's like, this is going to be cool. And then it kind of pumps the brakes in a weird way. Mm. And for me, I didn't like, I knew right away. I was like, this is cool. But I didn't really love the game until Act 2. Mm. And the interlude after Act 2, that's when I was like, all right, all right, now we're doing this. Yeah. But yeah, the Marquez Farmhouse visuals are awesome. The Equus Oils gas station visuals are super awesome. It's such a sick first scene. Yeah. Oh, also, speaking of plays, Equus is the name of a play. It's about a, a young man that's like obsessed with horses. Oh, apparently uh what's his name harry potter daniel radcliffe uh, uh-huh. he starred in equus when it ran oh. on broadway or something like that and apparently huh. he got bug naked so oh yeah. yeah that was kind of a controversy yeah. at the time i remember that yeah because they're like you're harry potter you have to keep your clothes on <laughs> which is obviously not true he can do whatever he wants he went and done did it <laughs> He did, and he just kept doing whatever he wants, for better or for worse. Yeah. So, so this Marquez scene, it's, like, super trippy. You're, like, looking out her window at these horses in her backyard. It, it, it's almost like Conway is, like, spacing out and, like, being hypnotized by the sounds of, like, this broken TV. It just really sets this, like, cool, trippy mood. Well, and one thing that's cool, too, is... So we talked about this last time, um, like, stage plays like live theater is a big influence on this game and also Mm -hmm. a big recurring motif. But what I actually like about that aspect of the game is that they sort of approach it in like a weird kind of meta multimedia sort of way, which is to say that everything is lit and staged like it was in a play, like everything is on a stage Mm -hmm. uh, in a live theater context. But then they do all this crazy shit that you obviously could never do. So like, the normal frame of this game, like the visual frame is enormous. Like the average scene is really wide and the characters are really tiny. Mm -hmm. And then at random points, they'll do these like crazy zoom ins. And like this scene is great because as Conway is staring out the window, spacing out, it like zooms in really close and it's like 
super disorienting because at mm-hmm. this point you've been playing for 20 30 minutes and like conway is just like a speck and then suddenly <laughs> he like fills up the whole visual frame yeah it's something that i'm gonna probably bang on about more later because i'm just like annoying but uh <laughs> i think one thing that i used to really like doing when i was in high school was reading plays just as like literature mm. like I, I wasn't in plays i don't act or do any of that but like and i didn't even really go to the theater i've only been a handful of times in my life like it's just not a big thing for me right. but i i used to really like reading plays because when you abstract them and just read them as a piece of literature there's some really interesting stuff there uh and some authors like particularly write their plays that way so they can sort of be read as a piece of literature or you know, actually sure. used to like stage. Yeah. Um, one of my favorites is an author named Tom Stoppard. He's a, a British playwright. He wrote a play called Arcadia. He wrote a play called The Real Thing. I think those are probably his two like most popular plays. But he has a bunch of like collected works. And one thing that he likes to do is like write these totally insane like staging directions. <laughs> Mm. so like he wrote this one play that's all supposed to be on like a giant rotating stage and like all this other sort of shit that it's like no one ever did this right (laughs) like and so i think that this game actually has a little bit of that feel to Mm. it um just because it's like parts of it feel so much like a play but then they'll do this crazy shit like a huge zoom in or like a really insane shift in perspective that you obviously couldn't do in the context of a play. Well, that's an interesting take on it, especially because, you know, some plays are in the round, you know, some plays do crazy shit with rotating stages, things like that. Yeah. I mean, the staging of a play is like the final element or the final ingredient of it. Mm. And it's like, even like right now there's a, there's like this very famous staging of Hamlet that's like going on that they're doing like a huge press run for. And I'm just seeing a lot of like press about it. Uh, I don't know much about it, but I did watch like a scene of it. And I think the big hook of it is that it's just like very modern and a big way that they've achieved that is this like super minimal costuming and like uh, backdrops mm. And then it's all in the people's delivery. So they didn't change any of the words, but the way they deliver it, it sounds like modern conversation. Hmm. It's really weird. It's kind of hard to describe, but it, it's just interesting. It's like, okay, it's fucking Hamlet, dude. It's like <laughs> Shakespeare. It's super old. It's super well known, but the way you stage it can be just like the final ingredient that totally changes it. Hmm. It feels like that's kind of how they did this game where so much of it is just staged so conventionally that they have these moments where they twist it and that's like the final ingredient that makes it super crazy. Interesting. Yeah, this mysterious lady at the farmhouse asks you to bring the broken TV to her cousin that can fix it. And apparently this cousin knows how to get to the zero. At this point, you're kind of like led on this like red herring quest to figure out how to get to the zero. She gives you directions on how to get to the TV repair shop, which ends up being like a gas station and bait shop with like a little office in the back for TV repairs. This part's kind of cool because it's it's all played out as a text adventure. So you can actually like look around and explore the gas station if you want. But eventually you find out that she's not there either. I think there's a note on her door or something that explains it. Apparently she's at the mine. 
Yeah, and this whole part is what we were talking about in the last episode where there's driving sections that are just on a map. Yeah. And so when you pull up to a place, this plays out like a text adventure, but it's just like a text box over a map. It's really cool. It reminds me of like old 80s computer games. And it's so descriptive that like you kind of just put it all together in your mind, you know? Yeah, the writing is is good enough to to sell it. Yeah, yeah. it's awesome. So you take off to the mine. You have to take a right at the artificial limb factory. All the directions you get in this game are kind of hilarious. Yeah. But yeah, you turn to the artificial limb factory, you end up at the mine, and you meet Shannon, who is the other girl, Weaver's cousin. And when you meet her, she's on a payphone getting evicted. Kind of depressing. Yeah. I believe you, you actually play as Shannon on this part, too. Like, you switch from Conway to Shannon during the conversation. So there's a bunch of elements of this game that are really important that they actually front load in a in a way that's really interesting because it kind of flies past you. And then when you go back, you're like, oh, yeah, I think it's it's cool. This game was definitely meant to be replayed. But like so a couple big ones. Number one, supernatural shit. Like you said, in the first scene, there's fucking ghosts. <laughs> and then immediately after that, you start getting these totally wackadoo directions that are like turn right at the artificial limb factory, turn left at the tree that's always burning, shit like that. And even when you're driving around, the stuff isn't always on the map. It like fades into view as you get close to it, which is like a really cool effect. Uh-huh. And then, yeah, like you see everything is kind of like shitty and run down. You see that like the Marquez farmhouse is not exactly in great shape. And then you meet Shannon, who's one of the main characters. She's getting evicted. So you understand that like what we talked about last time, sort of like poverty and like economic collapse and all sort of things are like a big theme in the game. And then the final thing is the changing, constantly changing perspective. Cause like the minute you meet Shannon, suddenly you realize that it's a free-for-all and you might be controlling or speaking as or whatever Conway or Shannon at any given moment. And it's not uh, immediately clear either. Yeah. So you're kind of surprised by it when it does happen. Yeah. Like all this stuff is kind of surprising. So, so Conway tells Shannon that her cousin sent her and Shannon was kind of taken aback by this. Uh, and you can, you can kind of prod her a little bit for it and find out that her cousin Weaver had disappeared and everybody thought she was dead. So mm-hmm. there's your second ghost sighting for the game. Yeah. Shannon has some business to do in the mine, I guess. So Conway and Shannon like take off into the mine together. You learn about there was a, a struggle in the mine between the workers and the company. Um, the company cut back on a bunch of safety shit. There was a flood in the mine and a bunch of miners died. You can see ghosts of the miners if you, like, turn off your lamp at certain points. It's interesting because Conway and Shannon do a bunch of audio tests. Oh, yeah. Like, they send, like, test signals into the cave to, like, somehow using, like, pseudoscience figure out, like, the depth of the cave. I don't know. It's it's all pretty interesting. They go down into the mine, and then um, there's a, a collapse in the mine, and Conway gets trapped and pins his leg. He gets hurt pretty bad, but they find a, uh, like, a mine cart to get him out with. You find uh, some reel-to-reel tape machines, which were left behind by archivists. This ties into themes of, like, the Great Depression. And you also find uh, reel-to-reel machines for people that were recording um, folk music that the miners made. 
This all ties into a, a guy named Alan Lomax. Are you familiar with Lomax? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, he he was. I think it was the uh, the Federal Farming Commission or whatever. During the Great Depression, they hired a bunch of people to go through Middle America and photograph and record just the way people lived. So there's a ton of like Great Depression era photography that's recognized in this game. Along with the audio recordings of Alan Lomax, who recorded a bunch of uh, folk music from the time, especially like Appalachian folk, uh, he recorded a bunch of people like even like Lead Belly, ton of notable musicians. Well, and this is a kind of an interesting story because he, uh, so he pioneered a bunch of different stuff. I mean, one was kind of like the field recording archival folk project. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was not a thing before he went around doing this but after it became a huge thing and now like tons of people do this but it also essentially invented and he did some work in this genre later but he kind of like invented like the world music genre oh really um yeah because it was like i mean the idea was that you would go to places where people didn't have the means or the infrastructure to record music they would record it put them together on compilations and like show it to a wider audience get that time life box set yeah exactly but i mean his work is like a big reason why some of these dudes like woody guthrie and lead belly are like so well known Mm -hmm. because they he sort of invented a platform for it also they would go around with all this like mobile recording and cutting like lacquer cutting equipment Mm -hmm. that was super crazy and cutting edge and funny enough uh one of the lacquer cutting machines ended up back in Minneapolis and a dude I used to hang out with had one of them. That's sick. And so he would use it to cut straight like lacquers, but they were on this weird like plastic material. They weren't on like vinyl. Hmm. And uh, I actually did a couple releases on that material using that machine as like a weird like Minneapolis punk folk archival <laughs> thing. That's cool. So, yeah, I have a lot of love for this, that whole, like, era and that, like, project. It also spun off into, like, you know, later stuff that became very influential, like the American Folkways series mm-hmm. and the, like, uh, was it American Primitive series that were all just kind of, like, showcasing sort of like folk music and different kinds of American folk music. So, yeah, those are, uh, that's, I think that's a lot of the, like, backstory of main themes in this um, section of the game, the Great Depression photography, like Walker Evans and Russell Lee, and then the whole Alan Lomax thing. Once you get out of this mine, Shannon and Conway, Conway's limping at this point because of his leg. Anyways, they all take off back to the farmhouse so Shannon can meet up with her cousin, one, and two, to get the TV fixed. Of course, the the ghost cousin isn't there, but um, Shannon, quote-unquote, fixes the TV, and she tunes into a station, but it's, like, pitch black, and all you can see is a cave. Conway, he's, like, spacing out again, like, at the window, like, looking at the horses in front of the barn, and, like, the barn, like, turns into that cave. Yeah. And all of a sudden, Conway and Shannon are driving into the cave, and it's the end of Act 1. Super cool it's, scene. It's super weird and cool. Yeah. Once again, it's the framing of it is really psychedelic and it looks really cool. And it's a nice way to just play with perspective. I think like the mine, it has interesting ideas, but I think it's just visually not super interesting. Sure. And it's a little bit slow. Yeah. Like 
as a part of the game. So it was really cool that the payoff of it is totally worth it. Like once you see the last scene of act one, once again, if you like David Lynch, if you like lost highway, you're like, all right, fuck yeah, we're on the lost highway. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think also, I just have to say like act one kind of serves up the biggest Lynch vibes for me Mm. just because of like the visual design of the map and the sections where you're driving around on the map. And I drove around a lot. I just exploring and, and doing that shit. And then also the ending being this kind of like mysterious, weirdly edited entrance to a lost highway. Yeah. Super sick. There's a ton of stuff you can miss too. If you don't drive around and look at things. Yeah. Um, you can actually go back to the original gas station, Equus Oils, and you find a playwright, and he's trying to find a venue to put his play on, which which actually is part of uh, the end of the game. So make sure you go back to Equus Oils and check it out and talk to that guy. So if you don't, I did that, but yeah. if you don't do that, do you, you still see the same stuff at the end? You just don't have any context? If you don't do that, you can't unlock the fifth intermission. Oh, yeah, you have to talk to weird. him to get the fifth intermission. Yeah, and see, okay, so now we're kind of on to the, the first intermission. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to say just in general was, like I said before, it's kind of hard to imagine playing this game without all the parts and, <laughs> and pieces to it. Because yeah. it's like, some of this shit would really not make sense. <laughs> uh, what, as like a standalone thing? Yeah, or if you missed one of these and you're just like, played chapter two or something the first two times i didn't i played this game i didn't play any of the side mission stuff and i didn't feel like i missed anything oh, okay but now coming back and playing the whole experience it's cool to see all this side stuff because it, it makes it a more well-rounded experience yeah but i mean i didn't feel like i missed anything if i didn't play them but i do like I that mean, they're front and center here yeah originally you would have to go to the website and download the exe file for these you know it wasn't sure. a package. And I guess like that was sort of my point when I was talking about all those novels uh, was like those novels use weird storytelling techniques. Things are out of order. You jump around a lot. You're not like spoon fed a traditional like structured linear narrative. Right. right. Yeah. So because of that, like missing pieces become even more important and more detrimental. So like if you were just jumping around all over the place, the stuff would seem even less connected Mm -hmm. but once you have everything in place it all feels like super connected and it feels really coherent even though it's not linear yeah but i don't know if i would have felt that way had i not seen all the the like interludes we'll never know (laughs) anyways so um the first intermission is called limits and demonstrations and it's an art gallery it's a um retrospective of lula chamberlain's sculptures um She's an ins- installation sculpture artist. Uh, so she does these like big, intricate sculptures. Um, you play as Emily, which is one of the three ghosts from the basement of Equus Oils. Um, and you're with the other two characters. So you're Emily and Ben and Bob. And essentially all you do in this intermission is walk around and look at the art. And Emily, Ben, and Bob sort of debate its merits. And then when you're done, you can leave. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's super cool. I, I really like this. The sculptures are cool. The conversations are really well written. And mm-hmm. like, they give you some good options in the conversations. So like, if you don't get it, you can just be like, I don't get it. Yeah. 
which I, I thought was really cool. I also like that. I think if I'm not mistaken, all the intermissions are just like this where you can dip in and dip out for as much as you want. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think a lot of them have a sort of concrete ending, but others, they're just like a pop in, see what you want to see and pop out. Mm hmm which I think is really cool. It actually, for me, encouraged me more to like explore everything there and try and see everything that was there because I, I didn't have to. Yeah. 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 Well, there's, there, I think there are achievements. So if you're a Chivo hunter, which I am not, yeah. and I don't think yeah, you are. So no, you know, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But besides yeah. that, I mean, yeah, it's a very pop and pop out experience. I think that's a good way to yeah. put it. More hands. Once off. again, I'm, you know i'm really into these fucking info games yeah you know like games <laughs> where it's just like like outer wilds and uh disco elysium and this game mm-hmm. where it's just like get the info yeah G- get the info get out if you want more info there's more you only need <laughs> this much info to pass you know mm-hmm. i'm into it dude i haven't yes. It's weird to play normal games like after <laughs> after playing these games. So I'm like, what do you mean I have to beat a boss? Like, <laughs> what? Are you kidding me? Well, just think of each like, intermission as a boss. That art gallery no. boss. <laughs> I refuse. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I really like these. And I think they just get better as they go on. Like, this one's sort of a fun teaser and it, and it fleshes out these characters that you saw earlier, you know? Yeah, totally. Moving on to Act 2. I, I love the way this one starts. It kind of starts as a cold open. And you're playing as someone you hadn't met yet, uh, which is Lula Chamberlain, the sculptor from the previous scene. But she's at her day job in this scene. And she's reading a rejection letter from an art gallery, I believe. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It, it's it's funny just because in the previous scene she's kind of like revered as this great artist, and then the next scene that illusion's like completely shattered. Yeah. And then she like immediately has to like deal with her dipshit coworker. <laughs> yeah. Well, and she gets the letter while she's doing her job. Yeah. So she's like stamping, like documents basically. <laughs> And then she gets this rejection letter. Yeah, and then her dippy coworker comes up and asks her a dumb question. It's very fucking relatable, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, so Lula works at the Bureau of Reclaimed Spaces, which is a sort of like a bad shit insane place. Um, I kind of love it. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so Conway and Shannon show up here. Uh, the Bureau is like the first stop on Zero. So they stop to ask for directions. And the Bureau is this crazy place. It's like on a dock and in a cave, but it's outside and inside all at the same time. Yeah. And you can never tell when you're actually inside. And even when you go up the elevator to certain other floors, it feels like it's outside. It's a very confusing place. Yeah. Its architecture is actually based on two real life churches. I'm going to ruin their pronunciations, but there's the Mariendom in Navige which is near Dusseldorf. And there's another one called the Scottish St. Bride's Church in East Kilbride. Uh, if, if you Google these and look at them, they're pretty amazing. There's one of them that where there's like light posts outside and the light posts continue to the inside of the church. 
So they're like really screwing with like this idea of in and out. Pretty cool. But the, the, the Bureau like really embodies that idea. Totally. And then you start like looking through the floors and it's just weird. <laughs> they're all different heights. One of them is just labeled bears and it's full of bears. Yeah. <laughs> they're pretty chill bears. Very chill bears. Yeah. It's a crazy place. It's really cool. It's cool. It's it's kind of introduces you to some of the weird theoretical physics ideas that are in this game mm-hmm. about traveling along these weird highways and stuff. You know, I think it's a nice intro to have it a place that's both inside and outside at the same time. Well, it's very poignant that it's a bureau because there's so much bureaucracy going on in this place. This part of the game really plays with that, too. Um, so you, you, you go to the receptionist to get directions. She doesn't have directions, so you have to go to second floor, talk to this guy, talk to that guy, and they lead you round and round. You're trying to fill out paperwork, get the right get the right paper filled out. And, you know, you have to go up to the fifth floor and down to the third floor and check all over. And it turns out the person that you needed to talk to was just sitting at the desk the entire time. Yeah. Pretty awesome scene. It's very reminiscent of Brazil, the the film yes it's basically a horror movie about bureaucracy <laughs> also it's very reminiscent of flashback for sake of genesis mm-hmm. uh, there's a scene where you have to get a job and get a work permit and it's like the same thing you have to go like up and down the floors in a uh, office building and talk to the right window and then like get it stamped by the boss gotta point that out because conway looks just like conrad so oh yeah <laughs> Totally. That, that's got to be a kawinky dink. Yeah, and like I said, I think this game is equally indebted to cinematic platformers and text adventure. It really foregrounds like the text adventure influences, but mm-hmm. cinematic platformer is definitely in this game's DNA. It's impossible to ignore, yeah, in my opinion. Totally. So, turns out, they don't have the information. Not all the records have been moved to this building yet. Apparently, they're in a church in a storage facility so you have to take the zero to the storage facility which is like this big empty giant cathedral-like chamber of a storage facility and apparently it's supposed to be a church but it's not you talk to the janitor and apparently the janitor plays like old sermons from an audio tape so there's no parishioners and there's no priest but it's just this guy like playing these out of habit. Yeah. Really bizarre scene. You could either choose to listen to the sermons, which are all kind of weird and trippy, or you can choose to have Conway like talk to the janitor. It's one of those examples of the game with like wildly branching dialogue. You can get a ton of different stuff out of it, depending on what you choose to talk about. And at the end of this sequence, Conway is not doing so hot. He's having problems because of his leg. He blacks out and he's sort of incoherent the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they start trying kind of rushing to, to get through this so that they can get him to a doctor. You go back to the bureau. Lula tells you to go see her doctor friend. So you go to where the doctor's supposed to live, which is called the Museum of Dwellings, which is another, like, absolutely batshit place. It it seems like it's a giant warehouse with, like, small houses inside it. Yeah, it's like a museum that's full of houses, and it's enormous. (laughs) It's absolutely enormous. And this scene is, like, you're you're controlling it directly, but all the dialogue is in, like, a third person. Like, there are people observing you, and they're talking about what you're doing. 
we talked about this in the last episode. This game likes to do this thing where it shifts the perspective to security cam footage mm-hmm. and then has like a third party sort of narrating what's going on. It happens a few times in the game. This is the first time. So you're still directly controlling your characters, but it looks like security cam footage. And then the dialogue, if I'm remembering correctly, it's almost like police who are interviewing or like security guards who are interviewing the people in this museum, Hmm. like about you being there. (laughs) Um, It's very strange. Yeah. I, I kind of got, it never explains it, but what I thought it was, was, uh, Ezra and another kid watching Conway and Shannon walk around talking to the other people that live there. Oh, sure. But I could be wrong because the way it looks like, it looks like whoever's watching them is watching from the roof. Yeah. And Conway and Shannon start at the bottom and then take a giant lift to the roof. So I'm I'm not sure. Well, the whole concept of this is amazing, too, because it's like this huge museum that's so big that it has a bunch of houses in it, Mm -hmm. which is crazy. And then people who have basically been displaced from their homes just go and live in the houses. Yeah. So the place is almost like a squat or something, but it still becomes class stratified because like the cheaper, shittier dwellings are on the floor and the nicer houses are like on the roof. Yeah, And so there's still like a class system, basically, even though all the people are kind of homeless and they just live in this museum. (laughs) It's a really cool concept. It gets weirder because you get to the roof and you talk to this kid named Ezra, uh, who ends up joining your party. But um, he talks about him and his brother, Julian, taking all the houses at night to the forest so everyone can sleep in the forest. So... Turns out Julian is this, like, giant bald eagle. Yeah. And he just, like, grabs the houses and brings them to the woods at night. And then in the morning, Ezra and Julian move them all back to the Museum of Dwellings. So weird. What does it mean? What does it mean, America? (laughs) Yeah, I thought, like, this is a cool sequence. It's got, like, a... I mean, I, I just watched Parasite finally Mm, yeah so definitely kind of thinking about i mean that's like the saddest movie ever and it's all about class inequality and class warfare against poor people and how poor people fuck each other over instead of blaming the rich people yeah and how the rich people just kind of get away with it (laughs) uh but it's it's interesting because it's not I mean, that director is very preoccupied with that theme. It comes up a lot in his movies. Like, Mm -hmm. all of his protagonists are poor. And obviously, he made Snowpiercer, uh, which if you haven't seen Snowpiercer, what are you doing? I have not. Oh, my God, James. Are you kidding me? I don't know. It looked kind of stupid from the trailers. Dude, the ignorance is overwhelming. (laughs) (laughs) All I know about it is that one trailer I saw that one time. And that's okay, but like you have to watch this movie, dude. It's so good. It's so, so, so good. But it's essentially like a huge, it's basically like the world falls apart uh, and all the last of humanity after all these like, you know, climate change and nuclear shit and all the stuff has just like ravaged the world. Everyone ends up on this train. And so it's this one huge train that is very much like the Museum of Dwellings where it's like, a microcosm of humanity that is extremely class structured. Mm. So like all the poor people are basically huddled in 
just crammed in these shitty boxcars eating this shitty food. Like it's with this weird processed like soylent kind of food. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the as you go forward, things just get more and more like nice and upscale until you get to these people who are just like literally on like a luxury night train and they just do whatever the fuck they want and they party. And like it's so amazing because it's basically like you could take like humanity and society is like so fucked up and is so class stratified that you could put it in any context and people would figure out a way to like invent a class system and a caste system and would find a way to like subjugate each other. And I mean, obviously it's like, you know, pretty dark shit, but I like that in this game, they did the same thing, but in a little microcosm involving this museum. And also Jesus, you have to watch Snowpiercer. Everybody, come on, dude. <laughs> you heard it's it. So good. After you watch Parasite. Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> what's funny is that I actually think that Snowpiercer is like more accessible as a movie because it's kind of an action movie. Mm, like, yeah. it's kind of just like an exciting action movie that also happens to be very deep and very like dark and depressing. Parasite is more of just like this incredibly well-constructed like drama, you know? Sure. So they're really different genres, like that, but they have the same ideas. Like I said, you can tell that he's very like preoccupied with this idea. But like, even if you go back to his earliest movies, like there's that's still a preoccupation for him. It's just very much like Parasite is all about that, you know? Yeah, yeah. But so is Snowpiercer. It just also has like really baller fight scenes. <laughs> Perfect. And it has Tilda Swinton, dude. Like, come on. True. True. Our Dark Lord, Tilda Swinton. <laughs> Where were we? So they go to the forest. They ride a giant eagle to the forest. <laughs> yes, a giant bald eagle. Also, once again, the magical realism influence is so powerful here to basically go from like maybe the darkest, most depressing part of the game that's all about like poverty and homelessness into the never ending story. <laughs> yeah. This forest scene is like so like trippy and cool too. There's like some hillbillies playing bluegrass in the woods. You're playing as Ezra at this point. As you're running through the forest, like the game visually starts playing with like the positive and negative between the trees. Uh, sometimes you'll see things through the trees and then the trees will move and then you don't see them anymore. Yeah. It's, re- it's a really cool effect. Just one of the most visually striking parts of the game up to this point. Totally. And it does a really cool thing where basically as you run right, playing as Ezra, scenes kind of happen behind you. Mm -hmm. uh, And they progress in a way where like scenes just change fluidly. So you're kind of running right through the scenes and there'll be like a scene change. Yeah. It's almost like Uh, flipping pages in a picture book or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. The direction of this part is cool because you're also like, it's pretty disturbing too because you're watching Conway like totally fall apart. Like he's really sick. Yeah. Um, And he's like, kind of seems like he's dying and it's pretty (laughs) alarming, but you're also just like running through the woods as a child with this chill ass folk music in the background. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's good choices. Good direction. Yeah. So luckily you end up at uh, Dr. Truman's house. And uh, Dr. Truman injects Conway with this drug called neuropnil while explaining like this like debt pyramid scheme shit going on with this pharmaceutical company. Yeah. And like, I don't know, it turns out Dr. Truman like is in a bunch of debt and he has to like use these certain drugs 
to like pass the debt to his patients or some weird shit. And then all the while, like, like it'll switch between Conway and the doctor and then like Shannon and Ezra, like talking on the couch. It's like a really cool scene where it just keeps flipping between foreground and background. Almost like, you know, like in a play, how they would like switch spotlights on different characters. I'd like this segment talking about debt and talking about medical debt specifically right after talking about, you know, the other themes in the Museum of Dwellings. Because it's like this chapter is maybe like my favorite just because it's so fucking real. Mm. And it's also like I think this game has a really like even handed and um, sympathetic portrayal of just like normal people. Yeah. And watching Parasite actually and playing this game made me realize how rare that is. Like, I think a character like Conway or a character like the dad from Parasite is very rare to see portrayed sympathetically. Mm. Basically all entertainment industries are owned and operated by rich people. Right. They have a vested interest in portraying poor people as losers and thugs and pieces of shit. Mm -hmm. And so the weaknesses that people have or the situations they end up in because they're poor, like you're an alcoholic truck driver or you're like a dad who basically like runs scams to support his family. Like, they have a vested interest in portraying these characters as like pieces of shit. Mm -hmm. And so, which is like super fucked up and unfair because that's actually much closer to most people's day to day reality than anything else. Like I'm not the dad from parasite and I'm not (laughs) Conway, but I'm a lot fucking closer to them than I am to like any straight man lead in like a movie. Sure. Right. Cause it's like, yeah, I've been just like poor for a really long time and I'm basically just doing whatever I can to like scrape by and like, no, I don't have healthcare. And like, yeah, I constantly am doing battle with my employers or my clients or whatever. Like, yeah, it's like, this is much more real and like related. And yeah, people follow me around stores when I go there and think I'm going to steal. And like, people are mean to me when I go nice places, even though I can like sometimes usually afford to be there, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like, it's really fucked up and I find that these sort of portrayals are really important um, not only to show people who haven't had that experience that it's real but also to reinforce for people who do live that experience that's like you're a fucking person and like this system is bullshit but I just love that it's like this doctor he kind of like signs Conway's death warrant but yeah. at the same time it's also like he fucking lives in a hut in the forest and is in massive debt. Like you can see that it's like, he's not really a villain. It's like everybody is just locked in this horrible system. Mm -hmm. Fine print and red tape. Yeah. And then you basically get some drugs and blackout and that's the end of the act. (laughs) Yes. There's a ton of extra stuff and references in this act. Um, As you're flying around the map as Julian, you can go back basically to like every place you've been to at this point. And at least read some new like flavor text about it if you're curious. Yeah, and we didn't talk about this, but do you drive on the zero in this act? Uh, yeah, I believe you do. So like, okay, driving around the zero is essentially just like a circle, and a lot of mm-hmm. times the directions will be like, 
Oh, just like keep going until you see the vacuum tube and turn around and then you'll be there. And so the driving on the zero is like super trippy and kind of abstract. Yeah, it's a circle and weird graphics pop up and appear around you as you orbit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so, yeah, you're just meant to go until a certain symbol pops up and then you go the opposite direction and then like a prompt will come up for you to like get off the highway. Yeah. It's almost like weird tarot cards or something. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Or like yeah. Uh, constellations. Well, and it's once again, I think there's a strong element of like theoretical physics imagery in mm-hmm. this game. You know, like the idea that there's these kind of loops or connected strands that you navigate in a way that seems nonsensical or nonlinear. Mm. I mean, it's just like, for example, the deeper that people understand like physics and understand cell biology, the more that we understand that like none of this stuff is linear or like easily digestible. Like for example, like the Bohr model, the model of a cell, Mm. you know, people used to used to represent it in this very like simple, it's like a circle and there's a nucleus and like, well, here's how many like, you know, uh, like neutrons are in or whatever. And like, now we know that that's, that's just a, a fantasy and it's just like kind of utter chaos in there. Yeah. So that was cool. that They kind of, took some of that imagery to represent this weird like black hole highway <laughs> yeah well there, there are a couple of references i did want to point out um the museum of dwellings is really um inspired by this architect named uh, artur nostrenko's work he kind of played with the idea of like if society ever collapsed or if we went into a great depression how like useless suburbia would become and so he imagined like a, a mass exodus from suburbia, you know, like once natural resources ran out and things like that. And so his ideal was instead of rebuilding America, you would have to retrofit America because moving forward, the, there won't be resources. So you have to retrofit everything. Um, he wrote up this uh, thing called retrofitting the American dream. And it has a bunch of his architectural models in it, and it's really cool and interesting. And a lot of it looks a lot like Kentucky Route Zero. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Worth looking into. Kentucky Route Zero kind of imagines an alternate America that is sort of based on the idea of subcultures where, Mm. like, everything is just going to be so shitty and it's going to fall apart so hard that if you don't just want to, like, hang out at a gas station all day, (laughs) like... You have to go somewhere else and do something else, which I think partially why this game is resonating with so many people right now, because things are just really bad (laughs) and like people are kind of feeling that. And, you know, once again, I mean, people who'd never been part of a subculture in their life are now kind of lining up to be socialists, which is good. Like (laughs) we need more socialists and we need more fucking punks and like, you know, but it's, it's just interesting because I feel like that's a strong... There's almost like that's part of the fantasy of this game is that mm. there's this whole like subculture existing and there's like all these kind of places that exist under the surface. Mm-hmm. Like playing this game for me was really nostalgic because there's a lot of depictions of like, yeah, people working together and doing art projects and stuff like that mm-hmm. that just kind of reminds me of like my early 20s yeah totally and feels very very far away now that i'm in my early 30s (laughs) because it's like 
yeah, we don't we don't really do things quite like that anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, even though I'm sure to some people my lifestyle seems romantic because I can like hang out in a dark room and make music all day. But <laughs> it, you know, it's just like the way it's portrayed in this game. Like there's resources and there's sort of like hopefulness and all this kind of stuff. It feels very nostalgic in a way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So after Act Two, we get another um, intermission. It's called the Entertainment. And this one was actually built around using a VR headset, which I think is pretty funny. Um, You watch a play in first person in 3D. And uh, this play plays out at a bar. Um, I think later on it's revealed to be the lower depths, but maybe not. Maybe it's just a stage. And it's really about um, all these people at a bar drinking, waiting for a musician to show up. And the musician never shows up. Yeah. It's kind of a little like uh, Waiting for Godot, which comes up later again, too. Yeah. But yeah. Waiting for Godot. Classic movie. I think the genre of all this stuff is that it's sort of like these plays that are about nothing or just about like downtime or waiting for something to happen that ultimately reveal uh, the character of the different players in the play. Sure. Right. Yeah. Like you, you learn something about these people based on what they do in the downtime. It's kind of also what, like how, why Pulp Fiction became legendary. Like Pulp Fiction is largely seen as a movie that's about an action, the scenes in between action scenes in an action movie. Yeah. You know? Um, but that's kind of this whole like genre of, of writing. Mm -hmm. And so the play that's in Kentucky route zero is fucking aces it's so cool (laughs) so what it is is you have a first person view but you're at the sort of at the front of the stage and at the back of the stage is the actual set and the actors who are acting but you're actually a character in the play who is just a drunk so all you do is pretend your actor that you are seeing through your eyes is just pretending to be drunk so they can look at themselves and they can moan and they can like <laughs> do these really basic things, but they don't actually do anything. So what you can do then is there's two focal points on the stage. There's like a table and then there's a bar. Yeah. You can look at either of them to advance to dialogue or you can turn around and so you can look at the lights and get all the production notes on the lighting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can look at the jukebox and get all the sound cues from like read the sound cues mm-hmm. from the script. Or you can turn around and look at like a teleprompter or something that is displaying press clips and information about the show. Mm-hmm. And you like things only advance when you look at them. So you can look at everything. Um, and this actually goes on for quite a while. I think it's almost like it's like 30 something minutes. Uh, if you like look at everything and mm-hmm. read everything, it takes a really long time. Yeah. And okay. So number one, it's definitely a scene from the game. That's not in the main game. So it so? is a hundred percent. Yes. Cause they reference people and places from the game and they reference things that happen. And they also introduce the concept of this weird distillery that comes up later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the whole theme of the play is debt and the transference of debt, which mm-hmm. we've already been introduced to that theme in the main game. But now we understand it's going to be like the main theme of the rest of the game. Yeah. More or less. Yeah. Or, or at least Conway's story for the rest of the game. Mm hmm. 
because there are other plot lines and other themes that come up. But anyway, it's about these people in a bar and you kind of learn about their life and you learn that, you know, the bar lets people run up really big tabs. And so there's a lot of debt and the bartender has been trying to square that with the distillery and you find out that the bar is not doing very well because people aren't paying their debts. Right. And it's just so cool. Like <laughs> it's so well written. The characters are so interesting. The way that the the characters speak to each other and slowly reveal these details about their lives. Like you get a full picture of each character's life by the end of this little play. And it's even got like a weird little kind of shock jump scare ending that's really awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, when the guy from the distillery shows up. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk about this more later once this kind of like makes sense because it wouldn't really make sense to break it down now. Yeah. But, it's kind of foreshadowing. Uh, yeah. I loved this part of the game. I thought the writing was great. I thought it was a great play that was staged in a really cool way. Like it's a play staged inside of a video game. Um, I've never seen anything like it. Nope. Like this, you know? Uh, and it was super fascinating. It's my favorite part of the game. And yeah, I really like that stuff. I like, you know, waiting for Godot and I like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And I swear to God, there's a Christopher guest movie that's like based on waiting for Godot, waiting for Guffman. That's what it is. Is that what it is? Yes. Boom. I just remembered it. I didn't even look that up. I just remembered it. Boom. Uh, once again, my broken brain sometimes just spits out some hot facts, dude. I get real excited about it. When those synapses hit. Yeah, dude. When the, when the Windows 95 that's in my head finishes loading, <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah. I really like that genre. And, of course, like Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction's great. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of Tarantino overall, but, like, I love Pulp Fiction. I think it's cool that they added to that canon and made a cool little thing. I actually, I kind of hope at some point they maybe do do a wider release of just this part of the game and like try and get more people to just play that part or something. Cause you, you can download it for free. Yeah. But like, nobody knows that. <laughs> <laughs> just start sending it to your friends, like send it yeah. exe in an email. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's so cool though. And I mean, it's kind of what we were talking about earlier where it's like, I love how this game incorporates other influences and other art forms. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also a good way to get more people to experience this game and video games in general. Yeah, totally. Anyway, we're, we're running very long, so I will quit banging on about this. <laughs> we should talk about act three, act three, act three actually starts with a um, kind of flashback scene. It's like a sad scene from like Conway's past. This whole storyline is interesting because you slowly get the bits and pieces of it, but it's basically Conway works for this antique shop that was like his friend and his friend's wife Mm -hmm. and their kid and he was sort of directly responsible for his friend and his friend's kid dying oh really did you get that in the game i didn't catch that so that's interesting so there's a bunch of dense dialogue options i don't know Mm -hmm. if it's in this act i think it's in this act um for reasons i won't get too too much into (laughs) but like uh yeah if you don't get i mean that's what was so interesting about this game i think replaying it uh there's a lot that you can find out that you might miss but essentially he like worked for these people and he didn't he couldn't like his life was just a mess and so he was just sleeping in their barn and like getting drunk all the time and there was a day when he was supposed to do a delivery but he was like they couldn't wake him up he was like super hungover maybe still drunk so 
His friend was like, fuck it. I'm just going to take my kid. We'll go do the delivery. They have a car accident and die. Oof. And so he basically goes on for the rest of his life with the guilt of having caused that indirectly. And mm-hmm. also now he's like the only employee of this company. That's just this woman who we're now shown as by the end was like senile. Yeah. And also why he quit drinking, which mm-hmm. the game references a few times mm-hmm. and then later does something kind of interesting with. Yeah. Yeah. All types of sad. So yeah. Conway wakes up in Dr. Truman's kitchen, uh, but his leg is like a glowing skeleton leg now. Yeah. <laughs> the the image of like the glowing skeleton becomes a recurring theme here. And that's what the jump scare was in the intermission. A, a glowing skeleton showed up in this play. Yeah, um, a glowing electric skeleton man showed up to collect the debt. Yeah, and it's hinted that that's the guy from the distillery that that the bar owed the debt to. Conway's got a new electric leg that no one else can see, and um, they take off back to the Museum of Dwellings. Conway's truck breaks down on the side of the road. Yeah. So it's Conway, Shannon, and Ezra on the side of the road, stranded in front of a big tree, like waiting for Godot. And this motorcycle drives by. And then, so the perspective switches to the motorcycle driver and the person in the sidecar, which end up right. being Junebug and Johnny, the synth rock duo that we talked about in the first episode. Yep. Uh, they decide to turn around and help. And then they invite the gang to their gig for the night yeah which is freaking awesome well and the best part is that you just watched that whole play about like what happened at the bar and then you show up right after and so the bartender is really upset yeah. for good reason because essentially he sold and transferred all that debt mm-hmm. like that those people owed him to the distillery and so the distillery came and like did something to the people that we don't know <laughs> And, like, you get there, and the bar is empty. But all those people were waiting for Junebug and Johnny because they wanted to see the entertainment. That's mm-hmm. the name of the play. Yeah. Um, and then you get there right after, and it's empty. And Junebug and Johnny are talking about, like, playing and getting paid. And the bartender is just like, what? I don't fucking care, dude. Just do whatever you want. <laughs> Relatable. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, exactly. But yeah, then they do their musical routine, which is really awesome. Yeah, the Junebug and Johnny's musical routine is probably like the midpoint of the game. But it's it's this sick homage to the Roadhouse and Twin Peaks. It sort of has that Julie Cruz vibe. Um, yeah. But like the ceiling lifts off the bar and you see the stars and shit. And then Junebug sings this real pretty song. It's so fucking cool. And you just take your control, your hands off the controller for seven minutes and enjoy it. <laughs> you know, you do get to choose the lyrics. Yeah, you do get to choose the lyrics a little bit. But after the performance, they don't get paid. But uh, Harry the bartender gives you directions back to the zero, and you end up at a place called the Hall of the Mountain King, which is this like huge, like cave with a steep hill in the middle. And yeah. it's like made out of computer parts. It's like a big computer sculpture. Yeah, and then they've got a giant pile of computer parts that they're burning <laughs> in the center of it. It looks kind of like like Mount Doom or something. I don't know how to describe it. 
it's very fantasy it's like a dark fantasy thing yeah there's a bunch of people there they're all named after classic adventure game uh creators from back in the day and there's a supercomputer called xanadu that this guy named donald has been working on for 20 years turns out other people from the story had also worked on xanadu uh lula chamberlain worked on xanadu she was the sculptor from act two right and i think so did joseph the the blind gas station attendant from the first act yeah yep um so xanadu is this very old computer kind of like um if you if you've seen like the original computers from like the early 70s like the ones they would play space war on just like a circle vector screen yeah and you start to play with Xanadu and it's like this broken glitchy adventure game. You can't get it to work. So Donald tells you like, Hey, there's, there's been these like outsiders messing with it. And if you go to where the outsiders are, maybe you can ask them how to fix it. So you end up like going through the part of this cave and ending up at like a graveyard with a church and it's just so bizarre because like Conway and Shannon run off and do something while you're left behind and then they come back and don't tell you what happened and then you go back to Xanadu and Conway fixes it. You don't find out until later what they actually discovered. It's a cool piece of uh, of direction there too because they just come back and they're like, uh, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to talk about it. It's like, oh, okay. So weird. So you go back to Xanadu and you start playing it and it's like a Zork-like adventure game. And it's basically about how Donald and Lula and Joseph had originally like gone through the cave and started building Xanadu. It's it's very self-referential to their process and then it's very referential to the original Colossal Cave Adventure and how the original creator of that game would like spelunk and document the cave through that right. game it's very strange and it ends up in this like uh management simulator loop where you can like study and work on xanadu but it never gets completed no matter what you do you can't complete xanadu yeah xanadu is just like this giant unfinished project which is actually a reference to a couple different things you know of course the famous poem kubla khan and then also there's a uh, project xanadu by ted nelson he's uh, they call him the orson wells of software uh, he's been working on Project Xanadu for like 60 years, and it's supposed to be this like, they call it a hypertext library, which is supposed to be like some sort of like fancy super internet. But he's been working on it for 60 years and it's still not done. It's probably never going to be done. Yeah. Wired Magazine calls it the longest running vaporware project in the history of computing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's a cool idea. I mean, the game within a game thing is cool. And the idea of it being this sort of impossible dream uh, that I'll never be finished is cool because the poem that it's referencing is unfinished. Yeah. Um, it's famously, it came to the author in a dream and he woke up and he wrote as much as he could remember. And then he forgot the rest of it. Apparently it was an opium binge. Yeah. And then somebody interrupted him during his like opium trip so he couldn't finish his poem. <laughs> yeah. And uh, also it's heavily referenced in citizen Kane, Thorson Wells film, uh, which has a similar vibe. It's like essentially this impossible dream and sort of all about this, you know, Citizen Kane being all about this film tycoon who kind of conquers the world but still can't achieve his sort of childhood dreams or find any sort of happiness. So it's it's a cool reference. It's a it's a cool segment. It's like 
weirdly really sad. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, but mostly just bizarre. Like, what the fuck? It's dark and creepy, and, like, the computer makes horrible noises the whole time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and you're in a cave with a giant fire in the middle of it. It's yeah. like... <laughs> I mean, I think, like, once again, to... To talk about the horror elements in this game, it's not just like the dark aesthetics and the lynch stuff. There's scenes that are like genuinely creepy. So you end up at, back at the bureau, and then Junebug was like, "Hey, what happened back at that church?" So then you 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 go back to that scene at the cemetery and church, but you play it from Conway and Shannon's perspective, and bizarrely enough you walk into the church and sit on a pew and then like an elevator brings you down to this like underground factory and it ends up being the the whiskey distillery hard times it it looks like a james bond like villain compound yeah it's like a 60s mod factory warehouse like dr evil's compound or some shit yeah yeah totally all all the employees are skeletons they act like Conway's there for a job interview. And so uh, this one skeleton uh, drives you around and basically takes you on a tour of the entire distillery while you check out different things. This ends up in Conway taking a drink in a Faustian deal where um, he accidentally signs up for the job and he starts the next morning, which puts him somehow more into more debt. Like he keeps like yeah. doing these like bad deals. Well, and there's a there's a cool couple cool things about this thematically. One is that this is actually where you find out that backstory about Conway if you want to, because like they just drive him over to a truck and they're like, take a look at it, and so yeah. you inspect the truck. And if you pick the right options, you get to see his internal monologue about mm-hmm. thinking about his whole backstory. The other thing is that this whole scene, he's just getting strong armed into this deal, right? Yeah. Like they don't want a tour of the factory and he doesn't want to work there, but he just keeps following the orders of this guy. And it calls back to the scene with the doctor where it's like, he did not want experimental drug treatment. He did not want any of that, but like he felt like he didn't have a choice and he was just strong armed into just taking it. And Conway ends up being like a real, a real like substantial everyman in this game, because it's like the shit that people get put through every day where like, you don't want to participate in this shit. You don't want any of this. Mm-hmm. You definitely don't want the debt, but you just end up with it. Yeah, totally. So he just finds out that he's going to have to be a fucking skelly man tomorrow morning, and that's just not good. Thank you for listening to Zero Brightness. If you'd like to support us directly, you can go to patreon.com slash zero brightness. You can also find and interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Discord. All the relevant links are at zerobrightness.com. We'll see you out there. It fasts forward back to the bureau. Turns out the bureau's on a dock and a and a boat pulls up to take you to the next part of the zero. <laughs> And yeah. that's the end of the act. So this interlude is really cool. It's called Here and There Along the Echo. And you can play it as software, or you can just call the number on your phone. And it's like a weird informational audio hotline where you can you can click through the the numbered dialogue options and hear about like 
the flora and fauna of the Echo River, which runs through right. Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. Cardboard Computer, the developers, did a couple really interesting things during this time. They auctioned off a haunted phone on eBay that only dialed one number. They hid a bunch of secret codes in the phone call. So in the software version of this game, it's literally just a phone. You can you can pick up the phone receiver and like dial the number. And that's essentially all you can do. But if you if you leave the phone hung up for like 20 minutes, the phone will ring and you'll get one of those creepy AM signals that just says code. Are you familiar with these? Well, yeah, like number stations. Number stations. Yeah, people sort of assumed they were military related cuz they cropped up, you know, when when they used to do all those big marquee wars. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Not like the sort of uh, backburner constant war that we have now. <laughs> um, and yeah, artists quickly became, artists and conspiracy theorists quickly became fascinated with them. Um, Wilco made reference to it and I believe sampled it. Boards of Canada famously sampled it um, in the song Gyroscope. Mm. That's maybe like one of their most, if not their most well-known track. Total banger, by the way. <laughs> um it has like a creepy kid reading number station. And yeah, I mean, once horror games kind of came of age, uh, many of them decided to make reference to number stations. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Th- this one, this interlude is weird. It's got all this like mysterious stuff in it. Like you can just listen to descriptions of things and stuff. But the thing I liked best was this weird meta thing you can do where like you can press the options that let you interface with like the voice but you can't say anything yeah so it's like it's it's kind of a weird thing where it'll be like okay tell us why you can't sleep yeah (laughs) or it'll be like why are you holding the snake you know yeah yeah and like i like that kind of stuff because you can't do anything with it so you could just sort of mess around with it like a weird creepy toy (laughs) um yeah obviously there's kind of an arg part to it and people totally dove headfirst into that yeah, so um, the number station is actually a code. And if you listen to like the entire 40 minutes of this code and write it down, um, some dudes on the Steam forums decoded it. And it's it's a reference to like some obscure poem. Really cool shit. And it's awesome. And I love it when yeah. they hide things like this in games. I think there's yeah. also a, a hidden Morse code message too. Nice. But this was the point in between acts where like it wasn't just like six months between each act. It was like a year or two. So people were like hungry for more content. So yeah. Yeah, totally. They were digging deep. Kind of a fun, weird little time waster. Yeah. I like it. All right. Act four. Act four all takes place on this big ass boat with a big animatronic mammoth on it called uh, the mucky mammoth. Since you're stuck on this boat and you can't control it or anything, the game gets more linear here, but at the same time, uh, the paths branch a lot. You can either choose to get off at the stops or stay on the boat at certain points, um, which actually makes Act 4 like pretty replayable. I mean, at least twice, because, I don't know, I felt like when I stayed on the boat, I missed whole scenes. And I was like totally right. When I went back and looked at the other scenes that I missed, like I feel like I fucked up. So yeah, uh, there's a lot to see in this act, even though it's generally pretty linear. Yeah, I mean, you are just choosing what scene you want to see from two options. Yeah, but the scenes are substantial, and there's a lot of character building. 
Um, it's it's a cool part of the game, but it, it really is just character building until the end. It really is, which makes it feel really long. And I, I feel like if you're not in like a reading mood, like maybe wait to play Act Four until you are, because there's just a ton of exposition. Yeah, I mean, this is though where. I mean, some of the game's best writing is, and also where some of its most ambitious, like, layout yeah. and uh, user interface stuff is. So, totally. like, we talked about in the last episode, but there's a really cool part here where you go and pick mushrooms. Yeah, very cool. And it's presented not as a split screen. It's, like, one screen, but the text is split. Yeah. So you're kind of, like, seeing two characters dialogue and thoughts in slightly different timing Mm -hmm. and it's really really cool you get to sort of like explore the interplay between these two characters yeah it's really cool there's there's several scenes but just right off the bat like conway starts drinking again which is very sad yeah and also he um since he took that faustian deal with the whiskey company he has a glowy skeleton arm too to match his glowy skeleton. Yeah. Leg. So it becomes pretty clear here that there's this, you know, this distillery that makes whiskey, and they are sort of in the more in the business of debt than they are in the business of alcohol. Yeah. Because it's like all of their employees are these skeleton people who get turned into it by either taking on debt or having their debt transferred. Yeah. So back in that play I referenced. The storyline was that there was like a bar owner, there was like a deadbeat bar fly, mm-hmm. and then there was this couple whose daughter had been paying their tab who finally came that day to tell them that she wasn't going to pay for them anymore. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the scene, it turned the bartender says that he actually sold all of their debt to the distillery. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially, I think the, the suggestion was that all the people at the bar are going to end up as skelly mans yeah. working for the distillery. Yes. Need more skeletons for that bone pile. And like, that's crazy. Yeah. It's like so fucked up and weird and scary. Um, <laughs> but then you start to see it happening to Conway, mm-hmm. you know, slowly. Yeah. Slowly throughout this chapter. And that's why he's just like wasted the whole time. Cause he's put it together and he's like, I'm fucked. Yeah. He has this like real resigned, kind of attitude to him even towards the chapter he says that he's just gonna give his truck to shannon even though it's not really his truck to give um yeah he's just kind of like given up and resigned which is just sad and depressing like the more i played this stage the more i saw like conway drinking i like i just felt like really bad for him yeah well and it's also like it's not something that they dwell on too much in the game, but mm-hmm. the delivery at the beginning of the game was supposed to be his last delivery. Yeah. Like he wasn't retiring because it's America. Nobody retires. Yeah. But like, he also just didn't want to do this anymore. And it kind of ended up being this horrible misadventure for him where now he's going to be like a monster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and boy. so he's just like, fuck it. Yeah. So, yeah, th- this boat stops at several places, and you can either, you know, get out and see a cool scene or stay on the boat and be an introvert loser like me. But um, the first stop is the gas station, and you play this part as uh, Junebug and Johnny, 
And essentially, you're just getting a bunch of background info about like them and their relationship. They kind of have an interesting, weird relationship as you know, a pair of robots that decided to not work anymore. You get some interesting insight on people that like live on the zero, like the guy that works at the gas station and a couple of other patrons of the gas station. Yeah, on the Echo. They're on the Echo River. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's cool because there's this, just like with the Zero, how things seemed kind of weird and hard to pin down. Mm-hmm. On the Echo, they literally are. Everything just floats. Yeah. So there's some good dialogue about like, oh, you were over here yesterday. I'm glad to see you're over here today. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you're just like on a river. The next stop is really cool. It's called the Rum Colony. And it's basically like a bar on the bank on the inside of this cave. One of Junebug and Johnny's friends is playing a set there. And he does this like really trippy, like synthy lap steel stuff. I don't even know how to describe it. But it's like a super trippy scene. Uh, if you choose to stay on board during this part, um, Shannon actually rifles through the captain's haunted videotape collection. Yeah. Uh, which is actually what I chose to do during my playthrough because yeah me too um it's just really trippy (laughs) but you don't get to see any of the tapes it's just descriptions of what's on the tape which is also cool that's very my speed it it turns out that all the tapes um like the vcr would go on the fritz and record by itself and it would only record this public access station called wevp which comes into play a little later Right. It also has a logo at the beginning of the game. Yeah. <laughs> which is cool. <laughs> which is really cool. Yeah. Uh, there's another scene where people stop and it's just a payphone. And like literally everybody just like calls somebody on their phone. Like the mechanic on board calls his voicemail and he has like 29 like really weird fucking voicemails. Well, that's it's the voicemails you can leave in the interlude. Yeah. Before that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so really it's like cool. people talking about their their dreams or sleep or holding a snake or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's very very funny and very cool. Yeah, he's a um, he's the narrator of the interlude. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. There's another girl named Clara on board. She's the theremin player. We talked about her in the last episode. Yeah. Yeah. She calls her sister in Lithuania, but it, it does this cool like split screen thing where like you can see the person on the other line. I don't know. It, it just seems very like photography or like matter fact kind of gorgeous and weird yeah totally yeah the stage really starts like cooking when conway and shannon get to uh this place well they're trying to find the central exchange and apparently it's in the middle of a bat colony yeah so you have to get on this little dinghy and like pedal towards the central exchange but like you have to keep turning your light off to not bother the bats yeah, if you leave your light on, they get agitated. So weird. And then this is where Conway and Shannon have that heart-to-heart about Conway giving her his truck and everything. They get to the Central Exchange, and it's like a, it's almost like a subway station with a canal running through it. Very bizarre. And then there are these people, like office workers, working in pitch black down there. Yeah, and they kind of talk about how it's really only one person left. It used to be like, or a couple people left and it used to be a whole office and it kind of slowly shut down. Um, You know, big theme in the game, kind of things falling apart and institutional collapse. One of those people is a, uh, like a telephone patch operator and she's just like sitting at the, the patch panel, like waiting for a call, but she never gets calls. Right. But they keep her anyways for some reason. 
so bizarre. Yeah. Anyways, it's really cool. While Shannon is talking to the patch operator, a couple Skelly boys get in the dinghy with Conway and take off with him. Yeah. So Conway's just like gone all of a sudden, like gone forever. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the scene is really weird and dreamlike. Uh, it's a really cool way to do. I guess it's kind of like his death scene, even though he's not dead. Mm. Uh, but like you go through that bat colony and it's really weird and dark and they're talking and looking at things, but it's really stop and start. And then you get down to this weird, like, yeah, telephone bank, you know, patch. Yeah. And then like, as Shannon is kind of having this mundane conversation, he just disappears with Mm -hmm. a boat full of skeletons. It's so strange. So Shannon meets back up with the gang at this restaurant, really bizarre restaurant scene. And, like, food's rotting on the table. And, I don't know. It's just really off-putting to me. And especially since, like, Conway's gone. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah. And then she says Conway's gone, and, like, nobody really reacts much. It's really strange. It's a weird scene. Mm -hmm. But it's cool, too, though. Like I said, this whole section, it's all in this sort of underground river or this sort of river that exists in nowhere. It's all black. Uh, it's really dark and dreamlike. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was kind of cool that the ending is as well. Yeah. Um, right before it ends, you get to see a theremin concert by Clara. She's playing on a bunch of houseboats. And then uh, the gang ends up at this spiral staircase. They can't take the echo any longer. Somehow they're trying to get this truck up this like never-ending set of spiral stairs. And uh, they can't, they figure out, they have to hoof all the furniture all the way up this, like, massive spiral staircase. Yeah. And that's kind of the end of the the chapter. Yeah. And then there was, like, a four-year gap between chapters. (laughs) So crazy. (laughs) I can't, I cannot imagine that. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine that. And I also can't imagine not, once again, not playing the interlude between four and five before playing five. Like, yeah, this one is incredible. It's probably my favorite. Yeah, it's really good. But it also like directly sets up characters and events that explain what act five is. I mean, I guess like the they were just sort of supposing that if you were this into the game, you would play everything in between. But to me, it's just so nice to have it all in one place because it's like so weird to think of that as like missable. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah, so the interlude between 4 and 5 is called Un Pueblo de Nada, which is a town of nothing. You play as Emily, who is one of the ghosts from Equus Oil's basement. Emily is, like, the producer at WEVP-TV, and this is, like, during a broadcast in a thunderstorm. So you kind of, like, stand in the middle of the room, and you turn 360 degrees... And then you can talk with people that are standing in the room or like interact with items. It's like a completely Mm -hmm. different perspective from anything else in the game. And it plays different from any other scene in the game. Yeah, it's really cool. You can like rotate around the room. Yeah, talk to people. You get a little bit more context for these three characters that we've seen Mm -hmm. in bits and pieces throughout the game. But you like you get to see Bob and Ben interact with each other and you get to see like Emily uh work mm-hmm. um which is cool and yeah it's it's really cool it's it feels a lot like the play interlude 
uh, the entertainment mm. because it it's sort of staged like a play. It's basically like a live broadcast call-in slash video show. Yeah, with guests and they do the weather. <laughs> yeah, and they're just doing. They just play these weird videos that you like hear descriptions of. Yeah, <laughs> um, and they also like yeah interview people about the videos. It's very weird and stilted in the way that like a real public broadcast like a public tv broadcast would be yeah okay so we haven't talked about this at all except for to bring her up in the beginning but there's this character weaver marquez so you meet her in the beginning of the game but Mm -hmm. then she disappears in a way that you're not even sure if she's real you find out slowly throughout the rest of the game that she's like kind of a legend like an urban legend (laughs) almost and that nobody knows what happened to her she was like an av person she used Mm -hmm. to work at this tv station but she quit and periodically she would signal jack the station yeah so she would steal their broadcast signal and just play this weird video and at a certain point in the game, you get a description of the video and it's kind of like just her talking, but it's really weird and creepy. Like just reading the description of it is like really weird and creepy Mm -hmm. in a way that's really cool. But at this, during this interlude, she comes up again and they talk a little bit more about her and like her kind of status as this weird mythical ghostly character. And then she signal jacks the station in this interlude, I think. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. The entire time this broadcast is going on, like it's jumping from people being interviewed to the weather. The entire time there's a huge storm happening and the studio is slowly flooding. And before you know it, you're in like an ankle of water and you're trying to like save the tapes and nobody seems to be reacting. Yeah. While the place is like falling apart. Yeah. It's almost like a nightmare, you know? Yeah. Well, and it's cool because, like, the host of this crappy show is still just trying to continue hosting the show. Mm -hmm. She has a couple of very, like, bland guests, one of whom falls asleep. (laughs) Uh, And, yeah, it's totally nightmarish and strange. Uh, It's great. Yeah, it it sets up the next chapter really well because all of these characters are in the next chapter. Yeah. Uh, and it also, once again, I was, I was really excited to see the Weaver Marquez stuff because, uh, one thing we didn't talk about in chapter four, uh, maybe just cause you didn't see it, but you can go and take this weird quiz. Hmm. Did you do that? I don't remember the quiz. Or it's like you participate in this weird experimental study and it's like a similar thing to the security camera footage we were talking about earlier. Hmm where you see like security footage of Shannon doing this, participating in this weird psychological survey thing. And then like these two characters like discuss her and eventually they start talking about Weaver cause they know Weaver. Oh, weird. And that's where you get the description of her video that she would play every time she signal jacks the station. Cool. I missed that. Yeah. And it's, it's really cool if you're into that shit because like there was a, uh, like there's a famous thing called the max headroom incident oh yeah totally yeah where someone signal jacked like a major metro tv station and Mm -hmm. played this weird video of like a bootleg max headroom talking and (laughs) it's become a big sort of like internet lore you know sort of proto creepypasta Mm -hmm. occurrence uh so if you're into signal jacking i mean this whole part of the game is really cool and this 
particular interlude actually brings that story back and kind of finishes it. Yeah. Because, like, the, the thing that people can't figure out is, like, what she is and if she's maybe, like, a prophet or something. Because it's, like, hmm. every time she does it, something happens. And in this one, she does it, like, during this crazy flood. Well, depending what you do on Act 5, you may get a little teeny bit more Weaver Marquez at the end. But I guess we can talk ah. about that at the end. So, yeah. Un Pueblo de Nada is fucking amazing. Like, goddamn, I love it. Anyways, Act 5 is very different than the rest of the game. I've seen a lot of, like, negativity around it. And while I can understand that, like, I can't really understand that. Act 5 is just fucking brilliant. Well, and this is where my whole thing about saying it's like a novel really really comes into play yeah. because so far we've gotten this weird experimental non-linear narrative and i think that if you read novels like that or any of the stuff that i've listed mm-hmm. throughout this whole thing it's like they don't just get to the end of the story and tidily tie everything up and just give you all the answers mm-hmm. it's much more likely that they give you something that summarizes the themes and summarizes the feel of the whole piece as like an ending rather than something that just gives you all the facts. Yeah. So the entire game up to this point has been one night, you know, you show up at Equus oils at sundown, you know, while you're in the basement, that the sun goes down, you, you emerge and it's nighttime. Act five starts on at the dawn of the beginning of the day. And you're in the middle of a really strange small town, and it's flooded. There's water everywhere. You're in, like, ankle-deep water a lot of the time. And essentially, this town is built around this hole in the ground, which is part of that spiral staircase. And the town is kind of like a bowl, and it looks like one of those uh, burial mounds you see in the Midwest. Like the snaking burial mounds, like near St. Louis and in Ohio, things like that. But it's inverted. It's not a mound. It's an upside-down mound for some reason. You play as a cat, (laughs) but all your characters are there. But you play this whole part, this whole last part, as like a completely detached observer to everything. There are two dead horses. Apparently, two horses died during the storm and flood. It never explains why, but they're dead. Well, so this is the town that the previous interlude is set in you can see the the tv station is like a collapsed building everything is the whole town is trashed i mean everything is just like totally trashed and they talk about how they had these horses that lived there that they called the neighbors Mm -hmm. and like the place and the place was specifically built to not have roads leading in or out uh and so after this flood it's like all the horses are dead a bunch of the town is trashed and people have just like totally lost hope or like given up on this town. Yeah. Um, it's also like there's a narrative that pops up if you go around and explore the town that it was at one point meant to be like a company town mm-hmm. for the power company. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, the company that controls the electricity and power, which is once again kind of connects it thematically to like the distillery because they're like these weird yeah electricity people Mm -hmm. um and so it was meant to be like a company town that was abandoned by the company and so these people moved in and just sort of made a little life there and 
it's very weird and sad. It's almost like this flood happened and broke their spirit. Yeah. They're all ready to leave the town. Yeah, exactly. But even stranger is when you actually get to the place you've been looking for the entire game (laughs) to deliver these antiques five dogwood drive. It's just like a sculpture. Yeah. It's like a super minimalistic kind of like a, almost like a minimalistic chapel, right? It's kind of like a house, but it doesn't have a front or back wall and it's just open and it has stairs leading up to it and it's pure white. It's really bizarre. And so it's, it's, it's really strange because your characters are moving this stuff into this fake house Mm -hmm. against the backdrop of everybody who lived in the town wanting to leave. Yep. And, you can sort of talk to people and make little rhetorical decisions like, Oh, I think we should stay here. I think we should leave. But it kind of sounds like the place is like some sort of idealistic dream for people. Mm -hmm. Like they try to stay there and make a little like idyllic colony and do what they want. But at some point everyone has to give up and move on. It's very strange. So it's kind of like uh, you're seeing these characters all as like revolving doors, right? Like your little party is sort of moving in while these other people are moving out. Mm -hmm. It's really weird. It's really, I, I get why people would be not into it, but because it's so weird, but it's also really, really cool and really good. It's almost like all the old timers gave up on their idealism. Yeah. And then like these fresh young faces come across it and they're like oh this might be a good idea yeah and like the end of the game is just like a funeral (laughs) yeah so as the cat as you walk around this circular town talking to people time passes and you might not notice at the beginning but like you know like the sun's going up and think people are doing things and eventually this guy starts like digging a grave for the horses And then the horses are put in there and somebody else is like doing a painting of the horses like as a tribute or whatever. And then it it culminates in this horse funeral and like all these ghosts show up. So it's like all the townspeople, all the new people from your gang are there. And then like all these ghosts show up while Emily sings this like old folklore song. It's so tight. What a great ending to a game. It's really beautiful and it's really cool. But it is, it's weird thematically. Like, it's a left turn because I feel like before the game was like this road movie that was all about America falling apart mm-hmm. and like the American dream being a lie and capitalism being horrible and everybody being locked in this like death spiral of debt. Yeah. And then. At the end, it almost feels like some weird commentary on politics and ideology. Well, like, you know what I mean? I I felt a more, I feel like there's like hope at the beginning of that day. You know, the first four chapters are all one night, but then like in this fifth chapter, it's like the entire day and then it turns into night again at the end. Right. I don't know. I, I just feel like there's like hope in like the younger generation of people that moved to this town. You know, they've shed the bullshit of the previous people's, like, ties to that, like, the evil electric company or whatever. Like, they're not involved with that. Yeah. Um. It uh, Also, it's, like, running... I don't know if you played it like this, but as the cat, I just kept going, like, in a circle the whole time. It's almost like yeah. driving on the zero. 
but as the cat, yeah. you know? Well, totally. I mean, it's definitely meant to be a symbolic ending to the game. So it calls back to a lot of other stuff. Mm-hmm. And it has all these ties to everything you've seen in the game thus far. I mean, it's also got this sort of magical or mystical element to it just based on the fact that like you're seeing characters that you've seen signposted throughout the game, but you haven't actually seen Mm -hmm. and you've seen images that you've seen signposted throughout the game. So like horses and the three characters who we repeatedly see as like a group of friends, you know, and like water obviously being a big theme and the power company Mm -hmm. and all these kind of things. So it's almost got this weird, like, fatalist or you know fate component to it that it's like the whole journey was leading these characters here Mm -hmm. and it's kind of up to them to decide what they want to do with it it's it's very much in keeping with the game's themes and i I think it's a cool ending i just also see how it's kind of a left turn it also it brings back the ideas of you know retrofitting the american dream where do we go from here it's a new day but also, it's like, I don't know, the way these people have to live, it's almost like saying that people have to go backwards a little bit to like move forwards. Maybe like society is too big for its britches and we need to get back to like basic things, you know, like community, like small communities. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's kind of the whole point of, I think, the interlude and chapter five. Mm is like showing that people working together can achieve things and make things, but also that like, that's a cycle that has to just continue on forever. And yeah, it is also somewhat destructive. Like things have to be torn down and reduced before you can even start to do that because in the greater system, there is no community and there is no togetherness and it's really just like debt and darkness and death. Yeah. And I think it's interesting the ages of, of people, right? Cause it seems like a lot of the people in that little town are maybe I'm just reading into it, but they seem like they're supposed to be in their like late thirties, forties mostly. Mm. And then the characters who arrive there seem to be like a bit younger except Conway who never made it is much older. Yeah. And you can cut. And I mean, the way that I break down generations that totally makes sense. Right. Cause you had like Gen X who sort of had this kind of rebellious countercultural attitude, but didn't really achieve anything with it. You had the older generation then that who are, God, I hate saying this term now, but they are actual boomers, <laughs> people who are 55 to fucking 70. Okay. Not just anyone who's older than you. Yeah. God damn it. Internet. Um, but like the boomers who even the people who had good ideas and people who wanted things to maybe be more humane, they couldn't break out of the system. This like, this respect for authority and this idea that the system is right was insurmountable for their generation, mm-hmm. I feel. Um, and then you've got a younger generation that's like the millennials and, you know, Gen Z and whatever, like where it's like, we don't really know what the future holds yet. We're all unhappy and we want things to change, but we don't know what to do. Right. So I, I think that they, they did kind of nail the ages and, and the different generations and what's going on in America with this final chapter the game starts with the image of this triumphant horse you know like equus 
his head sticking out of the ground like a like a you know an old dated sculpture and then the game ends with the two horses known as the neighbors being buried i don't know what it means but there's something something there with the circular nature of starting and ending the game with those images yeah well and like i said i think that's definitely their commentary on you know ideology and hope and change and how it's like how you would try to create those sort of emotions or actions in a system that's just really horribly bleak and terrible Mm -hmm. you know and kind of going from the initial starting point of that just depressing black and white town to the ending which is also very colorful and beautiful and there's a Mm -hmm. lot of light so i think that was a big change aesthetically that also signals you know something about the themes of the game playing as the cat what does that do for you (laughs) i like the idea of just like being a third party observer but like they really put emphasis on this cat and it's got like amazing kitty cat animations yeah and it's like so perfect as a little kitty cat it's like the most it's like the echo of the dolphin of like kitty cats you know what i mean yeah that's a good cat good video game cat (laughs) uh it's also cool that um, the it's you're not actually the cat. You're playing as a dragonfly leading the cat around. Okay. <laughs> Do you notice that? Yeah, yeah. And dragonflies are a theme that comes up over and over in the game. Mm. So it's like you see people collecting dragonflies or talking about dragonflies. They're like the symbol of, you know, light and hope. And suddenly you're playing this like glowy dragonfly that is leading this cat around and the cat's running around in circles chasing hope i mean i don't know if it gets much more obvious than that but i like i like what they did there i like that it's cute yeah all right yeah so gamers let us know what you think about this freaking ending i love it uh it's a lot to digest but it's one scene it's it was like four years of waiting for this one giant long scene I think it's amazing. I think it's a masterwork. I want to know what other people think about it. I look at it as there's no other way they could have ended it. Really? Like, there's really no other way to do it because they made this long, sprawling, weird, nonlinear adventure game that's all about ideologies and the realities economically of living in America and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. And so at the end i mean and they got rid of their main character before the last chapter so it's like they already wrapped up you know the his arc and so you're left with all these other characters some of whom you just met this journey that's coming to an end in a way that's sort of already incomplete because conway's gone it really wouldn't make sense to do anything but try and sum up the themes of the game and like i said give you this sort of like tonal synthesis of the whole game just give you a picture of what they've been trying to do and say with the whole thing i mean how do you end kubla khan right yeah you what they should have did chapter five shannon and ezra first person shooter Mm. infiltrating the whiskey factory blowing away electric skeleton bros with ak-47s getting their buddy conway back putting him in rehab yeah straighten conway out yeah, I love shooting, so... Get him a part-time job at Subway? Yeah, dog. Conway at Subway? $5 foot long, man. All right, so there's one more mini-chapter to talk about. 
death of the hired man which is uh that guy you met in chapter one's play but uh it didn't really happen and apparently he couldn't find a venue so death of the hired man is really just like a couple people hanging out at the bar while the camera is fixated on a television which you can flip through the UHF and VHF channels on and uh, basically just listen to this conversation. It's definitely the weirdest uh, intermission in the entire game. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't really have anything to say about it. It's just weird. Yeah. I like the end, the actual ending, like ending with that little musical thing and it just cuts to black. Yeah. So after I played this, I just sort of didn't leave an impression on me. I was like, that was weird. Do you think they should have just put it in a different place in in the order of things in this final edition? Uh, no, I don't know. It's like an epilogue. Yeah, you know, it is. It is what it is. Hmm. I just like. I just didn't. Don't really have anything to say about it. It's like a post credits Marvel sequence. <laughs> yeah, for the sequel. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how to feel about it. I don't hate it. But it was, like, interesting. I feel like the game should have ended where Chapter 5 ended. Sure. You know? But I don't think they shouldn't have, like, not put this out. <laughs> yeah, it just is what it is. And that's it. Kentucky Route Zero. The entire yeah. thing. We did it, everyone. We played it for you. <laughs> but you should, too. Yeah, you should totally play it. It's great. We probably missed a lot. Well, it's there's a lot that's missable. And, like, we've talked about you know with other games that we've covered it's one of those cool games where you can make lots of choices and they don't really impact what happens or like the plot it just impacts what information you get and Mm -hmm. how you view certain characters and things like that so you might have a totally different portrayal of certain events or characters totally so play it let us know what you saw six out of five (laughs) i thought I thought you were going to say 6 out of 10, and I was like, James, we did like four hours on this game. It cannot be a 6 out of 10. Uh, Game Club. Yeah, what? What? Game Club? There are other games that exist besides this? Yeah. Uh, We're going to jump into the deep end with this thing that's been floating around called the Haunted PS1 Demo Disc. Yeah. So we're fucking up our release schedule from probably stuff that we've said in past episodes but we're doing haunted demo disc then we're doing silent hill 4 haunted demo disc silent hill 4 dino crisis yes it's a lot of game that's a lot of game so get gaming gamers <laughs>